0: Support for Food Friday Leftovers comes from Berkshire Co-op Market, Great Barrington, Massachusetts, a community-owned natural grocery store dedicated to sustainable agriculture, the local economy, and the environment. Working within the community to better Berkshire County, one basket at a time. (music) Berkshire.coop
1: Welcome to Food Friday Leftovers,
2: a podcast about all the goodies left over from Food Friday.
1: I'm Dave Hopper. And I'm Ashley Kinsey. Tune in each week as we cover culinary topics such as food trucks, local food, pizza, veggies, beer,
2: and wine. You hungry yet? Huh, I'm always hungry.
1: Well, on that note, Ashley, tell us what's in the fridge this week.
2: We've got cheese in the fridge. We are speaking with Professor Catherine Donnelly of the University of Vermont. She is also an author. Her book is called The Oxford Companion to Cheese. And out of 46 episodes in Food Friday Leftovers, we have not had a cheese themed episode yet. So thank you. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Let's get cheesy. Let's get cheesy. I thought about doing the cheese joke and I was like, should I do a cheese joke? I don't know.
1: I can't help myself.
2: (laughs) I'm glad. I'm glad. (laughs) So my first question has to do with some of the cheese making traditions. What is, in your opinion, the most interesting cheese making tradition? Wow. Is that a really good question?
0: The most interesting. I mean, there's just so many. What I find fascinating about just cheese making in general, you're starting with this very bland product, milk. And from that bland product, you end up with 1,400 different cheese varieties depending on the various manipulations. I think one of the um, most interesting, many of the European varieties, just because they've been traditionally produced for so long, are Mm. very interesting to me. There's um, a cheese made in Sicily called Ragusano, and it's made in a wooden vat called a tina. And then once the curds are made, the curds are then stretched in hot water, and then it's put in these wooden blocks that are kind of loaf-shaped. And once the cheese kind of gets a firmness, it's wrapped on a rope and put in a cave and hung. And so you just see these incredible, and they're really caves and they're. Ancient <laughs> and you see all of these ropes with these blocks of cheese hanging, it's it's fascinating. And so that would be like a pasta filata style cheese. Um, compare that with something like a chev that's made fresh from goat's milk that, you know, might use a straw mat or a straw mold to kind of capture those curds just all of these variations that make for so many different products, they're all so interesting.
2: So do you think different caves would lend a different flavor to the cheese?
0: I think science is actually proving that that's the case. And so um, each cave is going to have its own constituent of flora that kind of imparts a different character into the cheese. So, um, you know, and so the cheese making technology or process itself is certainly selecting for a certain class of organisms. But then regionally, where they're all produced, you get that little specific variant of um, the regional flair.
1: So how did they find these caves to begin with? Is this just like, wow, this like a good place to put some cheese? Or was it yeah. kind of just an experiment?
0: Well, you know, it probably was kind of that thinking of, oh, this would be a a good place to see what happens to this product. Um, I'm sure kind of keeping moisture there is important with some cheese varieties. So like going back to the monks in the monasteries, Um, they're making these high moisture cheeses. They don't want them to dry out. So putting them in a cave is a good way to retain that moisture. You probably have wood shelves. You've got, you know, stone that's going to retain the moisture. Compare that with like a Parmigiano Reggiano or a Pecorino Sardo where it's a dry cheese. And so many of the aging facilities in Europe are actually in attics on, Mm. on wood where it's a very dry, arid environment. And then there's everything in between.
1: That's not as cool as a cave, though.
0: Not as cool as a cave. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of cheese making is experimentation. And so um, certain manipulations, it's like, oh, well, that made a nice product. Let's try that again
1: and see if it's reproducible. And a lot of people don't think about this when they just buy some cheese at the grocery store. It's like... I just want this cheese. You don't think of the process behind it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what um, the whole industrialization um, did to cheese. It kind of removed us as individuals from the process. And so where do you get your food? The grocery store. Well, where did it come from? I don't know. Yeah. Where now I think what's cool about the artisan movement, whether it's craft beer or regional wines or artisan cheeses, or CSAs, or buying local. It's connecting everyone back with their food, and how many of those traditional foods are produced is really fascinating. And I know the population of students that comes to the University of Vermont in a food systems program they just want this obsessive level of knowledge about everything, you know, how is that animal raised and what are they eating and what does that do to the character of the cheese and how is it made and where can I get it?
2: So my next question has to do with traditional cheese making versus commercial cheese making. Is one healthier than the other or not so much?
0: So that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, Cheeses are good sources of nutrition kind of across the board. There's been a lot of um, work that looks at the value of animals raised on pasture. They tend to produce milk that's higher in, um, has a higher concentration of conjugated linoleic acids or CLAs that have been shown to have very beneficial properties in terms of um, anti-cholesterol, anti-cancer. And so, again, that's um, something specific to pasture-fed animals. But across the board, I know a lot of individuals that are concerned about, you know, their own cholesterol levels might choose low-fat cheeses made industrially. If you look, again, in Europe at consumption of a lot of the hard Italian cheeses, the Italian grana cheeses and cheeses like Pecorino Sardo, those have very beneficial nutritive properties, part of the whole Mediterranean diet. And And and, they're so good. And they're so awesome. (laughs) And sometimes there's just no comparison. When you put the artisan cheeses alongside of their industrial counterparts, they can be very different products.
1: I love Pecorino Romano, imported, and um, Sharp Provolone. Mm -hmm. So what other Italian cheeses should I try if I love those ones?
0: Well, Ragossano that we talked about a few minutes ago is a wonderful, wonderful cheese that you can find. um, When you talk about the aged Provolone, I was at a um, conference in Sicily where they had a Provolone that had been aged for 12 years. Oh my god. sabered this thing open with this big, you know, sword. And the inside was all crystallized. And it was just amazing. And it was delicious. It was absolutely delicious. So yeah, there's, um I would suggest going to a proper, you know, cheese store, a cheesemonger, and, you know, get a whole sampling of some of those aged Italian cheeses. They're pretty knock your socks off. They're wonderful.
1: I can't believe someone could not eat provolone for 12 years and let it sit there. (laughs) I know, exactly. I can't go 12 minutes without eating it in the fridge.
0: Oh, exactly. (laughs) But I think... There was also a very long-aged, I think 17-year Parmigiano-Reggiano. And again, the crystal, these look like gemstones. And um, they're, you know, it shows you, like, the stability of those foods. It's really incredible. Where do they age this that long? Again, in in aging cellars or
1: caves. So you can't move for 17 years.
2: Exactly. (laughs)
0: Exactly. You're staying put. (laughs) Unless you want
2: someone to take your cheese.
0: Exactly. You may command a premium on your house, right? Well, but if you want the cheese with it. Cheese is
1: 14 years in. You can make it another three. Well, how many different cheeses would a cheesemonger have around? If you go to like a store where there's a cheesemonger, how many different varieties do they usually keep on?
0: Well, I don't know if you've been to Murray's in the city. I have not. Um, There are literally hundreds, just hundreds of cheeses. Whole Foods um, is another establishment where they have a global cheese buyer. She's a very dear friend of mine. And they source products from all over the world at any one time. In a Whole food store, there's probably 400 different cheese varieties. And um, the cheesemongers are so knowledgeable, so willing to talk to you about the products. And um, that's part of the adventure. Well, yeah. if you like this variety, then here are some variants that you should try.
1: Speaking yeah. of with Ray and beer before, it sounds like some of the beer bars around here where they have like a whole list from all over the world of the beers to try kind of like that but a cheese variety
0: yeah and increasingly what you're seeing in restaurants is um a whole cheese menu of um you know white tablecloth establishments will have a cheese card or a proper cheese course where you can start you know they'll feature some of the artisan stars of the area and um their products consumers increasingly want
2: if i'm planning a party And I'm not exactly sure what people's tastes are. What are some safe cheeses to grab for my cheese plate?
0: That's a really good question. And so, what I tend to do um, to stay safe, so there there are some cheeses that people either love or they hate. So, (laughs) I usually avoid those just so Gorgonzola is
1: one in my family.
0: Right. Blue blue (laughs) cheeses. People that love blue cheese love it, but there are some people that have an aversion to blue cheese principally because of the I'm mold. I'm a blue cheese lover, so, and my
2: family hates blue cheese, so I can't even, I can't bring it home.
0: Exactly. Oh
2: my gosh, it's thinking up the whole fridge, you know. So that would be an
0: example <laughs> of one, you know, if you were going to put together a cheese board, you might want to put the blue off on its own so <laughs> nobody has to deal with it. But um. Then what I like to do on a cheese board is do a range of um, very mild, like maybe starting with a chevre. Um, Vermont Creamery makes this beautiful peppercorn chev. I think it's a to-die-for cheese. And then get into some of the soft-ripened cheeses, some of the ones that we've tasted today, either a traditional French camembert or maybe some variants of that, the bombouche that's an aged goat cheese that Vermont Creamery makes. And then Some cheeses in the middle, um, like the Conte, everybody loves French Conte. It's just, I don't know, I can't think of anybody that I've ever met that doesn't love that cheese. And so (laughs) that's a very safe kind of variety, certainly around this region, the Cheddars. So what's happening with cheddar cheese is in this country with the affinage, instead of just an industrial cheddar, there's a collaboration in Vermont, the sellers at Jasper Hill gets green unripened cheese from Cabot Cooperative. They make very traditional cheddars. The sellers takes that wheel of cheese, wraps it in cloth and lards it and ages it in a cellar. And so they call it Cabot Clothbound Cheddar. And that cave aging gives that cheese a very different character, and it's beautiful. Mm. And so, and you could play with cheeses with your guests. That here's a traditional cheddar that maybe has some age on it. Here's a cave-aged cheddar. Taste the difference of those. Serving that next to a Conte is wonderful. And then um, some hard Italian cheese. I love an aged Parmigiano Reggiano in chunks. I think it's a great dessert cheese with some pork. Wine. It's beautiful.
2: Nice. Thanks. Now I'm hungry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
1: So I know you want to talk a little bit about, we were talking before the show about regulations. I know that you want to talk a little bit about that. Do you want to tell us about that?
0: Yeah. So I've spent a lot of my career um, looking at the microbiological safety of cheeses and as, as a you know group of foods, cheeses have a pretty remarkable food safety record. And so when the FDA um, starts down the path, with the, especially with the artisan community, oh, you can't use any of the traditional practices like aging cheese on wood or use of ash on cheeses, or by the way, you have to pasteurize the milk intended for cheesemaking. We've, through scientific research, have really challenged some of those assumptions that they're unsafe. And it's not just groups like my research group The um, government of Australia and New Zealand published very comprehensive risk assessments looking at the safety of things like um, the hard Swiss-style cheese varieties, Emmental, Gruyere, for instance, some of the hard Italian varieties, the aged provolones and the Parmigiano-Reggianos. And they concluded that the steps in the cheese making where curds are cooked to very high temperatures, that yields an equivalent level of safety of those cheeses as if they'd been made from pasteurized milk. And so in Australia... Um, they've only recently allowed their own cheesemakers to make and sell raw milk cheeses, but for years they've allowed the importation of raw milk cheeses. And again, I think we need more of a discussion and better science in this country to show our regulators that, you know, around the globe there are reasons why we have safe products, and it's education and it's knowledge of the process. And you can you know, where are we gonna stop banning foods? What about lettuce? You know, what about lettuce and spinach? Well those have caused outbreaks of illness. We mm. don't ban the sale of spinach. And I think we need something sensible with respect to cheese regulations.
1: Sounds like an academic minute. I'll be in <laughs> touch. Yes, perfect. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> and do you have a funny story to end us on?
0: So um I work closely with Congressman Peter Welch in Vermont and his staff. He's a big staff. person
1: on this station. He's been on quite a bit.
0: Well, and um, he took up the cause for the artisan cheesemakers in Vermont and New York State where the FDA was challenging the use of wooden boards and cheese aging. They said, you know, that that isn't allowed, and we're going to start enforcing the non-use of wooden cheese aging. And so Congressman Welch took the FDA to task, and they backed down because they realized that their regulations really didn't make any sense from a scientific perspective. And so it was kind of a stressful thing. And so I sent all of the staff members some cheese jokes, and my favorite one was, how do you hide a horse? And the answer was, mascarpone, mascarpone. A little cheese humor.
1: We got cheesy after all. Exactly. (laughs) Thank
2: you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure.
1: That was University of Vermont professor Catherine Donnelly, editor of the Oxford Companion to Cheese.
2: This has been Food Friday Leftovers. I'm Ashley Kinsey. And I'm Dave Hopper. Be sure to check out Vox Pop Food Friday every Friday at 2 p.m. on WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our producer is Jessica
1: Blaustein-Marshall.
2: Our theme is Beach Disco by Dougie Wood. Food Friday Leftovers is a
1: production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. And tune in next week to see what else we find in the fridge.